Thanks, Mike, for finally letting me tour the Cage Club Podcast Network studios. No problem, Brian. But hey, could you not tell Joey? He hates it when you mess around with his stuff. Is that every Nick Cage movie ever? Yup. From Fast Times to Massive Talent, this network is pretty much the house that Nicky Coppola built. Hey, what about over there? Where do those stairs go? Take a sip of this. It helps. It helps with the voice sometimes if you got if you got something in your throat. <laughs> this is Uncle Francis's wine cellar. The cup by cup Francis for Coppola podcast. And this is a Cage Club Network production. I feel like that was like half Godfather and half Giovanni Ribisi. <laughs> yeah, I slipped yeah. back. It was just random. Mafia I slipped guy. back into into random mafia guy. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, oh, George Lucas. I can't do the Lucas, but you know he has that like cadence. See, uh, I was going to try, but that's a. I feel like that's our our friend Kyle True. to do a good George Lucas. I never really. I always tried to do him with a raspy. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I never got him for all the. Anyway, here we are. <laughs> it's a hard one. It's a hard one. But when I said I have a seat, have a glass, and welcome to Uncle Francis's wine cellar. I'm Brian Rodriguez. But where's Michael? We're not starting the podcast without Michael. Hey, it's okay. No need to panic. I'm here. How's it going? <laughs> Welcome to the show. And today we're talking about a film called Filmmaker. More on that later. But I just want to remind you guys to keep your friends close and your fellow podcasters closer. And remember to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, give us a positive review or a five-star rating. Also, Follow us on social media. Support the show. Because you don't just support Mike Manzi. You don't just support me, Brian Rodriguez. You support Uncle Francis. Not that he needs it, but I'm sure he, he likes it, right? <laughs> I'm sure he likes it. Who doesn't like support? Yeah, of course. It helps. Absolutely. It doesn't matter where it really comes from. <laughs> so so follow the show on Instagram, Uncle Francis's Wine Cellar. Also, follow my personal Twitter. I'm still on Twitter. Um, you know, we'll see how the revolution goes. But uh, <laughs> I am at Omai oh Rodriguez, O H M Y Rodriguez, and Mike, you are at the Mikester, correct? Yeah, yeah, and catch me on Mastodon. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we joke, but <laughs> boy, we're timely. <laughs> oh man! So today we're talking a film that we alluded to last podcast. It's called Filmmaker. It's not a Coppola film, but it's about a Coppola film. And it's by Coppola's friend, George Lucas. But Mike, The Rain yes. People. The Rain People. I got a lot of feedback on this one from just like people I know. Not a lot of internet feedback, unfortunately, because I don't think it's that big of a movie. But like my mom even reached out to me. She was like, ugh, I hate that film. I'm like, what? I get it, though. I get wow. it. Wow. I can't believe that uh, she's seen it. Well, my theory, I didn't ask her about it, but my theory is that it's something you said in the episode, actually, that this is something that ran on Turner Classic Movies, and they were like, did you know mm-hmm. Coppola made a film before The Godfather? Like, in that kind of way. And she was probably expecting something like The Godfather or something like Coppola's later work, and not like a dark piece like this, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you're watching this for recreation... You're probably not going to get the best feeling, and that's what you said on the episode, Mike. Exactly. Yeah. No, it wasn't that. It's not that type of movie. It's uh, it's one of his more personal films. It's almost more of like an art film or, or something more of like a like a student feature length film, even though he was way out of school by then and everything. But like, yeah, you if you take my meaning, you know, it's not a traditional Hollywood film by any means. It's as close to an independent film as you could get at the time, I suppose. But for us, it's super fascinating. I think that's why we enjoy talking oh, about yeah. it so much. Oh, yeah. So we're going to continue a little bit of the chat on the Rain People, because naturally, Filmmaker is about the Rain People. And, and by that token, I'm continuing to drink this bottle of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Chardonnay. Had a little bit left in my fridge, oh. and I said, this is a short film. Let's not get drunk on a full bottle for a short film. Right? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> so, so exactly. Pour the end of the bottle in. And here we go. You know what? I was always wondering, you know, we're going to be talking a bit more George Lucas today. Uh, Coppola's protege, if you will, you know, something that I learned a little. I mean, I always knew they were close, but I never quite knew how they met. I, I learned that uh, today. 
in a little more detail, but you know, you always hear stories about Skywalker Ranch and they had a store called Java the Hut and it was like a coffee shop. And I'm shocked he never made Star Wars coffee or or Coppola hasn't branched out into more than wine and done some, something like coffee or anything like that because I'm drinking some delicious coffee mm. tonight. And I'll tell you, if those, if those guys branded anything with coffee, uh, I'd, I'd be pouring it down my gullet you know, 24-7. Well, Mike, it's funny because, like, if we did a Lucas podcast, maybe we could do the the Java's Hut or something. I don't know, you know? <laughs> then you could drink your coffee. <laughs> but no, we're, di- we're doing the Francis podcast, and I'm sure you went down the rabbit hole like I did with this one. So much fascinating stuff here. So we're going to talk the right people. We're going we're gonna to talk uh, a lot of Lucas today. Uh, I don't think we're going to take too long, but... We've added some new segments to the show. So before <laughs> before we get into the, the deep, deep, deep nerdy film discussion, let's take care of business. Godfather is still on Peacock, if anyone's wondering. You know, we always do an update. Okay, I was wondering. <laughs> yep. We always do an update on where The Godfather is, and The Godfather is still on Peacock. Yep, nice. The second thing, you might have noticed that there was a difference in Mike's intro with the show. We decided, well, I should say the godfather himself, not Vito Colleone, but Joey Lewandowski of the Podcast Network, the man whose stuff I'm not allowed to touch. Um, <laughs> he... <laughs> yes, Brian can't go in his house anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot, I cannot. He thought it was best to add Francis Ford Coppola's name into the title of the show, because again, if you're searching for it on Google or Spotify or something, right? You probably don't know who Uncle Francis is. <laughs> Since he's a creation right, of right. this network. Yeah. So, so it is now Uncle Francis Wine Cellar, the Cut by Cut Francis Ford Coppola podcast. Makes a lot of sense. It's a similar title. So if you're wondering, that's it. If you want to tell a friend about it. If you want a friend to search for it now, it's probably easier now. So want to get that out of the way. Whew, because, Mike, we have a new segment. You've been sending me like some great hunts in the wild right things you're finding in the wild yeah coppola related things and i don't know if this is going to be a godfather segment. let's just call it a coppola segment it's going to be mostly godfather stuff but mike's merchandise of the week mike explain what this segment is and tell us what your pick is (laughs) so basically this first when we started this podcast the like the week we started the podcast i was at the mall and i was walking through those uh stores that just sell socks like all kinds of socks and i was like brian look there's a pair of godfather socks if you, want them, <laughs> you know and that kind of started the list or not even the hunt really but just like finding easter eggs in the wild like francis related movie merchandise godfather you know tucker whatever we come across apocalypse now (laughs) we don't know if there's a jeff bridges tucker funko pop out there or not we don't know yet but you know you're right uh once you start looking it's kind of hard to ignore it's almost everywhere so you know almost once a week i do find uh something Francis related, mostly Godfather related, a product in the store. It makes me think of that scene in Spaceballs, merchandising, merchandising. We put the picture's <laughs> name on everything. It's where you make all the real money in the movie, right? George Lucas uh, knows a so, lot about that. Hey, precisely, precisely. Uh, and Uncle Francis took a page out of his book, apparently. It took him about 40 years, but he got the message. So, <laughs> so this week, I'll start with... Uh, with what I saw the other day, I sent you this at the mall. They have a store that only sells Funko Pops in my neighborhood. And I feasted my eyes on three Godfather-related Funko yeah. Pops. So pretty nuts. Uh, you know, they make them out of everything. But it wasn't exactly like that they were Godfather Funko Pops. It's what it's what two of the three Funko Pops were that I found to be pretty fascinating. Like, they're so ultra-specific, right? Uh, so the first one is Vito. And he's sitting in his chair, and it's the beginning of the movie. He's got his tux on, and he's got the little cat in his lap. Yeah. And it's adorable. And it's, and it's what you would expect, like, from a Funko Pop. It's nice. It's iconic. You can tell what it is. Um, the second one is Al Pacino. It's, can you believe Al Pacino and these guys, they have Funko Pops? <laughs> like, there's a, Mar- a Marlon Brando fucking Funko Pop, you know? The, the Michael Corleone one, though, is Michael hiding out in Sicily with a black eye. <laughs> 
like it, it, with the walking stick. Like it's so strange that it's that one. Like I would have thought maybe him at the wedding in the in the uniform, or maybe from the end of the movie. Uh, and then definitely the greatest one is there's the Sonny Corleone, R.I.P., the great Jimmy Khan. And it's Sonny Corleone, but it's when he goes to beat the shit out of Carlo. So he's got <laughs> he's got that outfit on and he's got a trash can lid in his hand that you can't remove from the Funko Pop. So like amazing, amazing stuff. It says the Godfather, 50 years in solid gold written on them. So... That is uh, that's the segment for the week. Mike's merchandising. And I there think, you have it. Look, they make Funkos of everything, but I think Mike, what interested you and certainly interested me is the specificness of it. Like you're saying, like these are scenes. Yes. It's not the first scenes I think of. They might have like regular Funko pops. Like I, I've never researched all the Godfather Funkos. There's a whole culture of Funkos, right? But yeah, yeah. To pick those scenes for these editions, I mean, Chef's Kiss. I love it. I love it too. I love it too. And it makes me wonder if there's a Johnny Fontaine one out there. You know, what does the Fredo Funko Pop look like? Oh, oh my God. Oh, man. Maron, right? Maron. <laughs> it's good stuff. The Turk, the Turk. How oh, cool. The Turk. <laughs> there was another thing you found, I guess, at that store or a similar store. I can't wait till you share that one. That was at Barnes and Noble. Oh, so. okay. Ooh, yeah, no. I can't wait to get into that one next, next time. Little teaser for next time. It's not, again, always going to be Godfather merchandise, but I guarantee it's going to be like 90% Godfather merchandise. But again, if you find <laughs> a Peggy Sue Got Married Funko, you might as well share it with us. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the holiday season's coming up, so I'm going to be out and about. I expect to see some crazy shit. Like, you know, I'll do a, we'll do a whole segment on it. We'll go through it. But I know for a fact that there's Godfather Monopoly. I've seen it with my own eyes. I'm going to go take a picture of the back so we could talk about what all the avenues are and everything. That would be a blast. We might save that one for a full episode. I want to have Godfather game night one night, so... Ooh, okay. I bet there is a Godfather board game. Oh, there is. Godfather the movie board game. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right. That's going to be crazy. There's multiple Godfather card games. Like, there's so many Godfather games. I'm like, what do you do in them? I don't understand. Uh (laughs) I don't know. I can't can't wait to find out. So one more thing before we get to the episode on Filmmaker. We like to shout out. Uh, nephews out there we like to shout out cellar dwellers out there and we were blown away by something on twitter mike most definitely not uh, and not just like the random thing on twitter but something (laughs) from someone who actually listens to the show and is a uh, big supporter of the network uh was got in on the joke shall we say like we made we sort of made a joke in passing and um he uh, he came back at us with some terrific artwork, Brian. Why don't why don't you introduce our friend? Not not that he's here, but I mean introduce. Him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So Jason Rainey, um, his Twitter handle is at J Rainey E S Q. But go to his website, dude. Right? Yeah. Rainystuff.com. Perfect website. But um, we mentioned. Well, you mentioned, Mike, how the yes. colonel uh, in right. the El- Elvis movie and in real life had I love and in Elvis. In real life, I am not just a fictional character. <laughs> I existed. But how he uh, would have I love Elvis buttons and I hate Elvis buttons. So, you know, I guess to make money on both sides, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I got to catch him uh, coming and going. So Jason Rainey, who's, you mentioned, friend of the network, uh, listener to Uncle Francis, clearly because he heard that joke, um, made Uncle Francis buttons. I love Francis Ford Coppola. I hate Francis Ford Coppola. And we reposted them on our, on our individual Twitters. Check them out. He's such a great artist. And, and we really, yeah. really appreciate that. And, and you know, yeah. I, I inquired if you do some more art for the show. So let, let's, see, let's see if he yeah. does. Yeah, it was hilarious it just it made the day i mean it made the week like it's so great uh when when people are listening and engaging with the show and he's been great online and he's just like yeah i just whipped these up quick and i looked at him i was like how'd you get how'd you do this so quickly like this would have taken me hours you know they look so professionally done uh it was a lot of fun and uh yeah just just hilarious loved it yeah, and I, uh, you know, if you go into his website, he's got a lot of cool stuff on there. Yeah. I don't know if he wants to plug, but, but we're giving him the plug because it was well, awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love his styles. I just said like he he's so good at you know stuff that reminds me of like uh, like old EC comic art and and even modern comic art and stuff. But then does other abstract stuff and fantasy art and just like goes out there and does great cartooning. So just terrific stuff all around. And uh, really glad uh, that he's a friend of the show. A lesson to all of you listening out there: give us stuff. Whether you, you commission <laughs> art for Uncle Francis, whether you give us cannolis, free wine, we'll take it. We want the love. Well, it's Uncle Francis who wants the love, but we want the love for the show, you know? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jason, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Shower Uncle Francis and us with gifts. I feel like the show is starting to round into form in a sense of, you know, we have our interests, we have our segments, but... We'll always do that. We'll always update you on Megalopolis. We'll always update you on where the Godfather is. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to settle into one or two things every month, right? So the big movies are going to have multiple episodes because we can't stop ourselves from talking. But when we do films right. like The Rain People and when we do films like, you know, uh, Dementia 13 or some of the earlier stuff where you just like put a couple scenes in for Corman, we'll probably have a mid month that's something fun or something interesting or something maybe not as known. And this is an example of that. Luckily, Filmmaker is linked directly to the Rain people, so we can kind of talk about both. But this is our, our sort of mid-month episode. And God, I didn't know this film existed until I, until I watched the Rain people and I started researching it. And I am so excited to talk about it, Mike. Brian, like, I am shocked because I thought I'd seen everything lucas has ever done you know including red tails even though he didn't technically shoot that movie like he's you know that's his one of his babies and everything but like i remember going back and finding you know now it's all over youtube but finding like a hard copy on dvd of like thx 1138 his student film before it was like released on blu-ray all that like i never heard of this i've never seen filmmaker a diary by george lucas this was a revelation. This was kind of mind-blowing. Like, I, I thought this was super cool. So Filmmaker is shot by the George Lucas. Again, if you're not familiar with George Lucas, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast. But, of course, <laughs> director of Star Wars. I mean, Indiana Jones. Well, sorry, not director of creator, all of Star Wars. I yeah. say creator of Star Wars. No, he, he, he didn't direct any Indiana Jones. He just created Indiana Yes, Jones. yes. Creator of Indiana Co-created, Jones. Yeah. Creator of Star Wars. Directed some Star Wars, but not people's favorite Star mm-hmm. Wars, to be clear. Well, di- directed one of the best Star Wars, the first. So <laughs> Yes, the first, and then he directed the prequels, right? Yeah, okay, so real quick, do you have a favorite prequel? Because mine is a hot, mine's a hot take. Like, I love Attack of the Clones. I can't get enough. Kyle and of, I of, like, talk about this a lot, and he doesn't like Attack of the Clones. I really like Attack of the Clones. It's hard for me. I don't know my favorite prequel. It might be Attack of the Clones. Cool, because I think I feel like people hate that one, and I'm like, I, I dig that one. I like it. Honestly, uh, I don't know. Who knows? But... I'm not a prequel basher because there are stuff even in Episode One I really love, like Pod Racing. So George Lucas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so again, yep. I'm not a basher of the prequels, but. Yeah, I know the prequels don't get the love. Last thing I'll say on the matter, they should invite George to come back and direct something now. Like, give him give him a couple episodes of something, you know, let him go to work. You're very passionate about doing. this, and, and I've thought about this. I agree with you, but what, what I think they should do is, like, let him direct, like, a Mandalorian episode or something like that, and don't tell anyone till it comes out, right? Of course, of course, if you can. If you can. If you can keep that secret. And when you see at the end, directed by George Lucas, you're going to be like, what? You know, it's going to be really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but George Lucas is arguably more famous and more successful than Francis Ford Coppola, if that's even possible. But just because, like, yeah. the worldliness of Star Wars, you know, the worldliness of that. There's no Godfather theme parks, right? There's Star Wars theme parks. That's so, oh, that's so mind-blowing to think about that, like, watching this short film... And being like, now one of them went on to have his own wing of Disney, basically. You know, he's got like his own section of Disneyland of the Disney Channel. Or, well, he doesn't own any of that anymore. But you know what I'm saying? It's like he sold it for a lot his, of money. His creation, you know, has has gone on. So, oh my god, it's just so bizarre. Like looking back on this movie and then seeing in the world we live in. <laughs> Trust me, like I, I watch a lot of Formula One starting this year and. That's what he does. George Lucas goes to like all the Formula One races 
around the world because it's real life pod racing and he just yeah took his billions and he's like oh let me go to this race you know <laughs> i mean famously i know we're we're getting into george lucas territory but like you know famously almost died because of drag racing and crashing and like that's why he went into you know college and filmmaking and originally he was going to be probably just a mechanic or a street racer or something like that but had a big bad accident and uh went to film school you know so it's always been uh into speed and going fast and fast cars and and all that kind of action listen to my episode of high school slumber party mike you're there as well um on american graffiti and we go into it in depth so definitely check that out wherever you get your podcast but uh the story goes here george lucas shot a behind the scenes featurette for the rain people and i mentioned it on the last episode and i kind of was ambiguous with how so i wanted to do a deep dive about how this came to be so in actual nice. in actuality um, we mentioned that francis went to ucla that george went to usc francis is a little bit older these were the first two real film schools on the west coast and you know the west coast is where they make movies so you know the two preeminent film schools in America, and both of them kind of stumbled there a little bit. So I should have done this earlier, but I did a little bit more of a deep dive on Francis Ford Coppola. I keep saying he was he's a Michigan guy, born in Michigan, but I realized he only lived there for a couple of years. Um, yes, that's where the Ford comes from, but he actually grew up for many years in Queens, in Woodside, Queens. You know, I was born in Queens oh, as nice. well, so got a lot of pride there. His father was... Uh, a musician. Obviously, we know that from his films, right? Yeah. And he was hired by the NBC band based in New York. So the family moved to New York and he went to Hofstra for his undergrad in Long Island. So he lived in Queens, lived in Long Island a little bit. Then his family ended up moving to California because I think his dad got a job in an orchestra in LA. So that's why he went to graduate school at UCLA. And Francis was considered the first guy of his generation to crack into old Hollywood. Yes. He did the Corman stuff, which is yeah. like the fringes of old Hollywood, but but it's still old Hollywood. Like what's interesting about the uh, Corman stuff is that like that is even old old Hollywood was still he was the only guy hiring those actors, right? Corman and he was nurturing the people like Coppola and the next generation of filmmakers to be like, this is how they used to do it. So when you get there, you know it, but then you can take it to the next level and do it your way, you know, that kind of stuff. So like very, very cool. And it is in the setting of old Hollywood that Coppola meets Lucas actually, because Coppola is contracted to do a film called Finian's Rainbow, which we'll cover here. And that's on old Hollywood sets at Warner Brothers Coppola, like, he, he wants to do it, but he doesn't want to do it, you know what I mean? Like, when he talks about that movie, he's like, I wanted to shoot it, you know, on location. I wanted the numbers to be like this, numbers to be like that. But Warner Brothers was dying at the time. It was the only film that they were shooting at that point, And they were using old sets from previous wow. movies. And they were just like, here, just do it. We got Fred Astaire. He's contractually obligated to be in this movie. Francis, we're going to hire you. You're a young director because you're cheap do this so george lucas is on the other side of town at usc and he is the prodigy of their film program uh you know the story mike but i'm going to tell it again uh for those listeners yeah, of course. who don't know it fun story yeah he actually went to usc with a friend a friend was doing the entrance exam he decides to do it he gets in so he's like what should i do and his friend's like why don't you do cinematography you like shooting the car races so much and things like that he says, sure, why not? One of his first classes was an animation class, and he loved animation. And they gave him, I think, uh, whatever one minute's worth of film was. And they're like, hey, just figure out how yeah. to use it. And he made this like amazing movie from it. I forgot the title. Sorry, it escapes me. I've seen it. I saw it in college. They, they showed it, uh, some short film fest a teacher put on. And like, yeah, it's remarkable. It's like really cool, uh, old style animation yeah and he went above and beyond uh what that class was supposed to do with that but they loved it there they showcased it it won all these awards and he became like the bell of the ball 
at USC. So he also made, before THX, he made a short film, which is just he strapped a camera onto a Formula One car and it went around laps like over and over again. And it was just trying oh, to capture the that. essence of, of speed and motion. I don't know if it's on YouTube or not. And the story goes is that like um, they were told to shoot black and white, but he shot in color. And it, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting stuff. So, I mean, it's very avant-garde, you know, he is and was at the beginning, super like that, like very experimental uh, type of filmmaker. So, Oh, for sure. Cool. For sure. We're going to get into that today because uh, basically he wins a scholarship at USC, an internship that he is going to go to Warner Brothers and like, I guess for the summer or for like six months or whatever, he can go into any place and take notes. You know what I mean? He's like auditing Warner Brothers yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. He has free reign. He can go watch any production being made and shadow any director he wants to. That kind of thing, I, I assume. The problem is he gets to the Warner Brothers lot and the first place he <laughs> wants to go to is Warner Animation because he loves animation. And of course, you know, these legends at Warner Animation, legends today, if I told you the names there, you'd recognize them from like Looney Tunes stuff, right? And he gets there and it's closed. And he's walking around. And again, there's only one movie, like I said, being shot. And it's Finian's Rainbow and Coppola shooting it. So he knows Coppola because everyone knows Coppola back then. He doesn't know him personally, but he's heard of him because, again, he's the young guy who's broken in. So he's on Finian's Rainbow. Coppola starts like sort of picking his brain a little bit because he's the closest to Coppola's age. Coppola says all the guys on that shoot were in their 50s and 60s. They're old Hollywood guys. So they really form a bond there. And he said to Lucas, give me one good idea a day and I'll use it. And that's how they form their friendship. I love it. I love it. It's like... (laughs) You know, he, he spied him from across the room and they like, it's like a life vest or something like a raft in the ocean. There's like someone somewhat near my age in this dusty old production of old Hollywood is like, yes, like together we can, you know, try and forge a new way perhaps or something. And I think in the, the interview that you sent me, there's like a, it was like a two minute thing. There was two little clips in it. And one of them was, uh, he, he was like, I saw this skinny kid with a beard, and I was like, I just had to go talk to him or something and see what he was doing here. And someone's like, Oh yeah, he's here to watch you. And I was like, Oh really? That's interesting. <laughs> I thought that was like such a fascinating way to sort of be introduced to someone. Is be like, you're here to sort of watch this guy, and like he's considered almost like you know uh, all the way up here, and you're still down here. And then he comes over and he's like, No, 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 like like we're on the same level, like there's no here or there. It's like, you know, let's go together and, and like make movies together and form a lifelong bond and change Hollywood. It's amazing. I can't, I can't even believe it. hundred percent, Mike. And what's funny is that Coppola said going to film school was actually a little bit disappointing to him. He felt like the theater program, all the theater kids worked together. They'd put on productions together. They put on plays and the film kids were more like critics. And I honestly, the film kids I know today are pretty similar, you know what I mean? Or at least the people I grew up with. So, Brian, like, I got to tell you, that that was basically, like, my college experience where it was like, oh, like, I'll go over to the theater department and, uh, like, there I'll find my actors, you know, and they'll, they'll be able to act. And then they're all acting dramatically like a stage actor. It's like, you know, can't really get them to act, like, on film. Well, and they're sort of off in their own world. And I was always complaining to teachers, like, aren't there any classes that – crisscross where it's like if you're majoring in film you have to do something in the theater and if you're majoring in theater idea, you have to actually, do yeah. something and and they're like uh no uh, i was like well there should be <laughs> you know because it was a roadblock for sure no that's a really good idea <laughs> but in a similar way like coppola found himself drawn more to the theater kids because they were it was more of a creative process right like the film kids it was he felt yeah. it was a little bit more technical and a little bit more critique like watch films and talk about them rather than like let's collaborate right so when he found someone a peer of his that he could talk to and run ideas by he was ecstatic they became fast friends and coppola you know what's one of my favorite parts of this podcast is mike learning about this man correcting what i thought about him and us collectively building the legend as we get more (laughs) facts you know what i mean Right. We get our info straight. So last time I said, you know, the rain people, Hollywood was mad at it. And I've kind of figured out 
why. You asked me why, and I'm like, honestly, I wasn't sure, and I had some guesses. But Coppola, actually, he was popular for his writing and his directing in Hollywood. They actually liked him, but they wanted him to do more of this old Hollywood stuff. And he's like, I'm not doing that. And that's where he came up with the idea for the Rain People. He financed it himself, which we see him talk about in this filmmaker thing. You know, he had some investors and stuff, but his whole idea was to create something. He's almost like a hipster before the hipsters that we know today, right? Like, <laughs> Probably, yeah. He didn't want to be tied down by that old bullshit. He always saw himself as the artist first. After the mm. Rain People, when him and Lucas are just editing and talking... That's when they come up with American Zoetrope. Prior to that, let me just comment on, on Coppola and, and Warner Brothers and big Hollywood and small Hollywood and all this. And so, like, I truly feel like this could be, you know, a lot of people credit Soderbergh for the birth of independent cinema in America, like, in you know, or at least its takeover and its sort of, you know, status on high with blockbuster films and you know it's reputable uh prestige and all that but like truly i think coppola was like this is like seems to be one of the first major studio independent films you know and and after this we'll get stuff like easy rider and i think we mentioned on the last episode stuff like you know even spielberg doing like sugarland express before doing jaws and things like you know you have to do your small indie film to prove yourself a little bit even even scorsese like he never really stopped making small independent personal films the way i feel coppola always kind of wanted to you know and coppola never was able to shake old hollywood ultimately because his films became more and more grandiose and operatic in the way that old Hollywood was, but he would use that kind of pomp and circumstance and twist it with his independent ideals and style. Right. And then you get very sort of, like you say, like hipster stuff, but also like hippie stuff in the sixties and seventies with like, a, and, and trippy things with apocalypse now. And later on in his, even, even the conversation has some trippy stuff going on in that, as far as like, your senses playing tricks on you and things and and just the the use of the medium of film and stuff you know i think he just saw the potential in what wasn't being done and being able to you know give that a try and uh, i'm really glad he did because like this is a this is a very quaint film on on some level but it's also super successful for what it is you know and i think it it turned some heads in saying like oh right like you know we can just send our directors out with a budget and trust them to come back with something that we can release. And I, I think that's kind of like how we got to this movie somehow, some way. Like, I think that's part of like the road to the rain people in, in a way. Yeah, Mike. So it's interesting. You mentioned Easy Rider. That's really it. Believe it or not, like the whole movement that happens is because of Easy Rider. Easy Rider is such a hit that the studios who are not doing well, as I mentioned, Warner Brothers has, they're almost making nothing, sees that, oh my God, a movie that uh, the budget was $400,000 made like 50 something million dollars at that time. Who else is doing things like this? So they pick up the rain people and they say, oh, Coppola is a guy we can trust, right? Like we've seen him do other stuff yeah. and he's done this. Let's see what else he can do. And yeah. you're so right, yeah. Mike, this is one of the cornerstone independent films this is one the rain people now that i like did my research one of the most important films in film history not as important as easy rider <laughs> but important in, in this sense and this is where we get in lucas this is where we get into this little film called filmmaker basically coppola says to lucas why don't you come shoot with me it's gonna be exactly how i wanted it we're gonna get in vans we're gonna shoot across the country you know it's gonna be smaller crew Everything I could ever have wanted. What film should be. The art that we've talked about in our private conversations. And guess what I've done. I've gotten a little bit of the budget for a behind-the-scenes film. I want to make movies with you, George. All I need you to do is just film some behind-the-scenes clips. And we're going to give you a salary. And that movie that you made, THX, we're going to do it one day. We're going to make it big like you want. <laughs> and I want you to write the script while we're doing this little behind-the-scenes featurette. So shoot this for me. I'll give you a salary. You don't need to get a real job. And write that script. 
Yeah, we even we'll even give you a Robert Duvall for your. <laughs> he'll go he'll go right from the set of this to the set of THX. Yeah, and, and incredible that like, uh, I mean, you know, to be like, don't worry, like the studio's totally gonna go for it. If you've seen that short film, they'll be like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> and if you see, you know, I'm a fan of that film THX, and even I watch it, and and it's difficult at times to to quite grasp. You know, it's very. I don't know, like it's very tough at times, but uh, to to imagine that that was a a major Hollywood release is incredible. But again, you know, they snuck it under under the radar in a way, you know, like that was sort of like their style. Like they would just be sneaky like that, like like they would just go make their movies and no one would have eyes on any of it. I mean, the same thing happened with Star Wars, you know, uh, like he went off and, and the same thing happened with Godfather, you know, they and, and Warner Brothers was even doing better by then. Or he wasn't even at Warner Brothers. He was at Paramount at that point. So like Paramount was doing great and he still went off and like shot this movie and they were trying to bug him about, I don't know. It's just, it's always sort of been their style at the beginning to just go shoot it the way they want and don't listen to anybody's com- complaints and shit and just deliver, you know? And as long as you can fucking deliver, that's all they really care about. So while people like my mom might not like the rain people, it is an important film for that reason. I want to one day have an episode that's just like a deep dive of American Zoetrope and like how that went. But it starts here. It really does start here. Believe it or not, Mike, Coppola, after this film and really after the success of Easy Rider, which again is not even his, it's just sort of a coincidence, is able to get financing for seven other films after this. Wow. Now, now not all of them were made, but Apocalypse Now Mm -hmm. comes out of this because... That's originally like a Lucas idea that Coppola eventually takes. And we'll get into mm-hmm. it when we do Apocalypse Now, many of the versions. But um, basically <laughs> for Apocalypse Now, like they had already okayed it. So he, know he, he knew he had it. Lucas was busy with Star Wars. So Coppola just like picked it up, right? Um, THX is made through the success of the Rain People. And I say success, not financial success. It made, you know, critical success. But it was more like, hey, let's go with this idea rather than like the... Big musicals on lots, right? Yeah, proof of concept is all it is, right? 100%. Like that's, yeah. And I don't think he saw at first more than anything but that. But we'll get into this short film, and you know, he sort of has a revelation at one point by the end of it, and all. But yeah, just incredible. So let's get into the short film. So Lucas does a really great yeah, job yeah. of shooting. Apparently, he was shooting constantly. Like they mm-hmm. could have made a two or three hour version of this, but. Um, you know, he didn't want to also betray Francis's confidence, you know. So he made an honest film, but it is indeed a short film. Yeah. Francis in it early on, it's very intimate, you know what I mean? Francis gets is very honest. Yeah. He talks about, like, how the, how the story of the Rain People came from when his own mother left for a couple days and went to a motel and came back. And he talks about how it's mostly his money and that he did it, like, because he wants to work with actors um, before we get into the the Shirley stuff, what were your early takeaways? First, I thought George Lucas, man, he he is a really good cinematographer in this short film. Like, it is really cool to watch, really gorgeous at times to look at. Uh, very interesting shots at times. Like, if the idea was intimacy, he captured that perfectly. Like, he is on the floor with the camera pointed up at Coppola sometimes, you know, on an angle, like he is right there in the mix of all of it, just a fly on the wall kind of thing. Really early on though, I got the sense that like, this isn't so much behind the scenes on Rainmaker. This is a documentary about Francis Ford Coppola at this point in time in his career and kind of what he means in a lot of ways to the people around him and you know his crew and and his comrades and all that kind of stuff and so i thought that was a lot of fun i love the sort of things along the way like specific we don't have to get into quite specific things but i love how there's a bunch of sort of bullet points and talking points that i wrote down that we can get into and yeah it's just so great to see the spirit of shooting this film through the eyes of someone also shooting a film with that same kind of kind of energy and enthusiasm and you see them you know with the rigs on the cars you hear them talking about like 
don't worry about the police and all this, you know, and uh, we could do what we want and we've got the money. And so there must have been such a great sense of relief while they were doing this to be like, you know, this is all legal and above board. And, you know, um, look at this. We got a helicopter. I don't know, man. It was just it was just very surprising. I, I, I had kind of forgotten, you know, early on how personal George Lucas was uh, with his films with like American Graffiti and, and THX and so forth. Like, even though I don't quite understand that, it, it's a very personal film about relationships. So this is also a personal film about relationships between a director and his crew and his friends and, and his actors and everything. And I really liked it. And that's why it's called Filmmaker, right? It's not called the rain people behind the scenes featurette. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's not about the rain people. It is in a sense, but it's about like a young man trying to make a film, a 29-year-old Francis Ford Coppola trying to buck the Hollywood trends of how movies are supposed to be done and, and making this movie. And it's again, it's so intimate. And this American Graffiti, when I watched it for the first time as an adult, like for the podcast, I was like, holy shit, you know, George Lucas is not really the Star Wars guy. He's a really super intimate filmmaker. And you see it here. You see the essence of all that and his storytelling. This is a film that, once it was done, it was sort of stashed away. Like, it was, tur- hmm. it was turned into the investors, but it wasn't released anywhere until 10 years later. I think it was like 78 or something. Okay. By that point, think of the 10 years between 68 and 78 into the history of Lucas and Coppola, right? Like, they're going to change the world in that next 10 years. So people got a little bit more interested. But it was, like, again, this film isn't even terribly popular today unless you're, like, a real film nerd. But it is essential if you're a Coppola film nerd or a Lucas film nerd, right? Like like you said, it's amazing that you hadn't seen it. It's amazing that I hadn't seen it or heard of it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And it's amazing. And they were both so happy with how this turned out when they, like, uh, watched it again in 78. Uh, The dolly we see in this, Coppola used that dolly, like, many times later. Even in the film Tetro, he used it. So, like, that's that's his camera dolly, which is amazing to see. Um, Other other facts that I got from this before I go into the details. Uh, Lucas was very proud of it, where he was, like, he felt confident to make THX 1138. Like, he was like, oh, okay, that was fun. Like, we did that. Cool. Uncredited editor of this. Guess who, Mike? Marsha Lucas. So, like, you get a lot of that, too. Oh, by the way, just real quick, I don't know. I mean, I know this clip has been going around, but there's a Dick Cavett show clip with Scorsese and Brian De Palma talking about each other's work. And Marsha Lucas is talked about more than they are. Like, they talk about her a lot. I mean, she cut Taxi Driver. Like, she edited a bunch of Scorsese stuff. And his. so, like, she she is a cornerstone during this time during with that generation of, of filmmakers it's amazing like how people say like the writers don't get enough credit for like making these stories but the editors are really the ones who do not get enough credit film is an no. editing medium as we all know as we've all heard but like name 10 editors i can't <laughs> yeah right don't make me <laughs> <laughs> yeah just a shout out to marshall lucas uh one of the greatest editors of all time i mean academy award winner so uh, obviously, she got her roses by the industry, but needs her roses by everyone as well. In terms of stuff that happened in the movie that I was interested in, last time yeah. we had mentioned that Shirley Knight and and um, Coppola did not necessarily get along. And a lot of this movie is about mm-hmm. that, right? He respects her, you can tell, but like it does get uncomfortable when they argue. Yeah. Because she's saying, you know, you can't really tell what she's arguing about, but he is so stuck in his ways and he wants it to be shot a certain <laughs> way. And he, he yeah. even says behind the scenes that he does respect her. But I don't know, man. Like, in 2022? Well, here's what I saw. She's not arguing at all. And he is stating his opinion loudly mm. or his point. And from what I can understand, we're seeing what I love to see and like, I'll get it, I'll get more into this one part in a minute, but I love to see them in the actual theater rehearsing. But when they're, when they're trying to shoot that scene early on where she goes to her mother's house, you know, and they're having this argument about would she, or would she not have her purse with her kind of thing and what to do with that. And Coppola is kind of like, 
doesn't really see why that is as important as she does. And she's like, well, you know, I'm just trying to get into the mindset, you know, and he's like giving her suggestions and things, but it's not working. And ultimately he's kind of feels like he has the attitude of like, that isn't sort of the big deal right now. Like, don't worry so much about that. It's about this. And she's like, well, it's about everything. And, you know, so it just kind of felt a little more like they had different ideas of where maybe this character is or was and and like you said it's based a little bit off of or at least the inception is coppola's own mother so you would think he would want to have some sort of say over you know the final product of who this character is but you also have to you know understand that this person is playing this character and as the actor you are giving them the trust to you know bring what they bring to the character and everything so like it really just seemed like a a headbutting kind of thing and her tactic was was flawless because she never got angry or loud. It was never one of those like Lily Tomlin arguing kind of things that you see online during that one movie. I mean, I think ultimately she ended up being in the right for that. But you, you catch my meaning, right? Like, you know where yeah. I'm coming from with all this. Like, I don't think it's as bad as it necessarily looked. It just seemed like creative people with different ideas of what they and Coppola never really like. I don't know. Like he gets he gets loud, and but I just think he's excited. He's one of those excited guys, and like you got it. You know, oh, it's his money's on the line. He's dealing with the studio. Like it's all that pressure. He even says at one point, "It's the writing and the editing. It's not the shooting." He hates shooting movies. It's not enjoyable to him. So you see that his process is grueling. It's a grueling process. He tortures himself, and I think to alleviate some of that torture, he passes it on to his actors and. That's unfortunate, but you can see that. That was one of my favorite lines of the thing where he's just like, I, I don't like shooting a film. He's <laughs> like, he's like I, I really love writing. I'm actually working on my next thing. And, you know, he mentions like the editing part, but he just does not like shooting the film. And, and I, I think you're right, Mike. Like, it's a little jarring to watch, but he's just passionate and she's passionate. And that's the great thing about filmmaking, right? Like, it's a collaborative process. Maybe you should have listened to her yeah, a little yeah. more. I don't know. I wasn't in the room, obviously, but it, it seems like she didn't give in. You know, like that's that's what I loved about it was like it did. There were never at any point was there sort of like um, we didn't see any kind of truce or anything. You know, we just see what happens now when we watch the movie. We see what choices and decisions were made and left and not on the cutting room floor and stuff. So I think that's interesting too. I love too how Lucas is able to string a narrative along with this right it's not just a behind-the-scenes yeah, featurette like one of the things he catches her saying is like oh this is sort of reminding me of the hollywood films I'm, i've done which is one <laughs> a line to show that she has done other things before as we discussed right like she doesn't need to necessarily listen to everything he says but it's also a line that pisses him off so much and she probably knows <laughs> yeah. that, too, at this point in shooting. It pisses him off so much because I'm sure he pitched it to her as, like, this is going to be the anti-Hollywood film. This is going to be different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just goes off on that. And then it cuts to this, like, phone conversation. Uh, someone from the Director's Guild is calling him. And, and he's telling us, too, like, it's a cutaway how they sent an assistant director who didn't know what they were doing. This is another assistant director, right? Uh-huh. And, and on uh-huh. the phone, and I hope it's a real call. I hope it's not staged, but it felt real. Where he's like, a lot of my friends are watching, and, and they can see what films we're making, and this is the next wave. You know, he's talking about it like that. Like, we're going to make yeah, films yeah. that are anti-establishment, and this is going to be proof. And like you said it before, proof of concept. Like, the whole time he's seeing this film is like, if we can make this successfully we can usher in a new generation. Again, it doesn't end up being 100% this film. It's more Easy Rider. But it does mm-hmm. usher him and Lucas and a lot of his friends into this whole other era of it. And I'm like, damn, George yes. Lucas. Bravo. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's just great timing. Way to catch. <laughs> great catch right there. I love that moment, too, because, you know, you're right. He probably pitched it to her like, you're finally going to be able to do what you want. Like, you're not going to have executives on the set. We're not even going to be on set. We're going to go shoot. He even mentions, he's like, this isn't a set. Like, we have to deal with the environment, like, using that and everything, like, drawing on it. And so, like, when when, <laughs> when she says that to him, 
you know, it must have put him in check to be like, oh my God, like I said, I want to make movies uh, that are not like being made in Hollywood. Here I am acting like an executive or something. Yeah. Like I told this actress, like she'll have the freedom to do what she wants and now I'm confining her or whatever. So like, you know, I wonder if that was going through his head at some point further down the line on the set. And, and as far as Lucas weaving a narrative along, I mean, it gets downright funny at sometimes and then like heartwarming and then kind of you know we've been through some of the dramatic stuff already and everything and so like it's really interesting how he crafts the story going on here and it and it almost turns out to be about like you know family in the end you know like we set out to make this movie and we wound up to be like this weird little misfit family family's a big part of it uh, coppola brings his young family on the shoot for this too right like Right, and right. Lucas purposely includes that for exactly what you're saying. He's Dom Toretto before Dom Toretto, Coppola. It's all about family here. And we'll see in his later films how much family does he include, how much family becomes filmmakers themselves. Like, uh, he's a big family guy. It's his nuclear family, obviously, but also the family he's creating, this idea of the one big family that's going to become Zoetrope, that's going to become a lot of his pictures. Like, this movie's prophetic in that sense. Like, if it was edited in 78, it would make more sense to me because it's like, oh, we saw how successful he was and this is the building blocks of it. But this was edited at the time, so it's like... Yeah. It's like Lucas almost knew that he was going to be a success. Well, it goes to show just how much he they knew each other. Like, he really, you know, and also goes to show how much Coppola knew himself, you know, because I feel like some people never really, like, know who they are, right? And, like, for Coppola to be, like fully formed by 30 and everything know exactly what he wants and exactly what he needs and all this stuff and to be like george is the guy and for george to be like i like coppola and like we are vibing and this is how you know like for all that to come together is just kismet and so it's it's great to watch it and i'm you know i'm actually have the short film playing as we're recording because i'm just watching it with the sound off you know (laughs) like i just yeah turned out to be like an instant favorite somehow oh, a couple other things i wanted to mention from the film i love the occasional george lucas uh, narration right because like he has such a distinctive voice uh, oh yeah we, yeah we get some of that as well i like when it goes to the editing portion and we didn't mention this person but barry malkin makes an appearance and yeah. if you look at barry malkin he's edited a lot of coppola's stuff i didn't realize he was credited and i don't know where he gets his nickname but in the rain people he's credited as blackie malkin and he's referred to that hmm. in the movie again. I, okay. So I don't know where he gets the name. But look up uh, Barry Malkin at home, people. Because like, if you look up how many Coppola films he's cut, <laughs> just an amazing, amazing book of work. I have, a, I have a few moments in the movie that I found to be kind of high points. First of all, you know, we mentioned how Coppola, like, and we were talking about the theater a little bit earlier. And Coppola sort of like gravitated more toward the theater. I think that that makes sense because he's a director, you know, and he never really, from what I understand, lays his hand on the camera very often, whereas George kind of started more as like a cameraman or cinematographer, you know, he was really telling, telling the story through image, not really with words as much. I mean, especially, you know, THX, that is almost a silent film, or at least I shouldn't say silent film, I should say like a wordless film, because there's lots of sounds and noises and things like that. But I really enjoyed seeing that stuff in the theater when they were rehearsing first. And I thought that was really well shot. And it almost looked like the Godfather to Mm. me. I wish like there is so much like darkness and the lighting just, you know, it's not quite there or anything. And it's because of the nature of a theater, it's all black inside and you have the spotlight and all that. But I was like, wow, kind of foreshadowing a lot of that style being used in feature film, you know, that sort of, very low light um, shadow play. Another thing I really liked is they mentioned how, okay, we're going to leave New York. We're going to go shoot our movie. Uh, we're going out into the country now. So we got to shave our beards. Yes, I was going to mention we're that. All gonna shave, <laughs> we're all going to shave our beards. And Francis is 
unrecognizable, says George. And he's not lying. I was like, that's Francis? He looks weird. Wow. It's funny, but it wasn't a long shoot. And by the end of the shoot, Francis has like a full beard again. <laughs> but they did that because they didn't. They were really guerrilla filmmaking here. They didn't want to get busted by the cops. They, again, they jumped into that parade in Chattanooga um, eventually, right? Like, that's the kind of filmmaking they're doing. And at the time, like, a beard meant you were a delinquent, essentially. So... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Any anything that would would keep him out of trouble would help him get yeah not looked at sideways and stuff. No, I knew I realized that they you know were stealing lots of shots and doing guerrilla filmmaking, but you know ultimately they are there you know with Warner Brothers protect. You know if anything really went wrong, it's like okay, like call Hollywood California, ask for the Warner Brothers, and like they'll get us out of jail. <laughs> you know, like it's not that it's not that bad, but. You know, it's a sign of the times. It's Easy Rider. That's what the movie, you know, that's one of the points of that movie. It's like, get a haircut, you hippie, or I'll blow your head off, unfortunately, <laughs> in some states at that time. Especially where they were shooting, once they leave New York and stuff. Yeah, which goes to show which like, filming Easy Rider for, that probably took a lot of balls, because Dennis Hopper, you know, was looking like that, driving cross-country, making a movie, so. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the most interesting things to me about this era is that these guys gamble, and relatively quickly, their gamble pays off, right? It wasn't like they were making right. 20 movies like this, and then suddenly, like, one gets picked up. And I guess you couldn't. Like, how could you survive if you're bankrolling them all? But Hollywood changes, like, feels like it's on a dime, because they become, you know, the lead figures, the Coppolas, the Lucases of the world, eventually the Spielbergs, but the De Palmos, <laughs> right? Like, they become, like the lead filmmakers in Hollywood and other things are considered independent films, not their films. So it's just weird how it switched yeah. so quickly. And we mentioned like the 10 years between when this is shot, and when this is released, think of the change in Hollywood. It's just hard to fathom. You know, I honestly believe this is probably why, and I never wanted to believe it, but like why George Lucas didn't do more star Wars than he did because it was never about Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Like Star Wars was a thing he had to do to finance making more of these types of films. And it just, he created a monster that he couldn't control and it took over the rest of his life and he never was able to, he became a businessman, essentially. He even says it, you know, he created ILM, he created all the, you know, THX, uh, the sound thing, THX sound, right? Like he even uses it for the name of the sound that he create. He goes on and he changes cinema technically you know he becomes a gearhead as far as he's concerned making new cameras digital film horizon all that kind of stuff so it's making more sense when you watch filmmaker you get a better sense i think of who george really is you know and that star wars was just yeah it was like I'll go make one of those old school Hollywood action films and then I'll get back to making these. And he just never had the chance to get back to making these. And at least he got to watch Francis go on and do his thing, I guess. Yeah, Francis does it a little bit. But uh, even in this film, Filmmaker, he's like, they were offering me a lot of money and everyone said, make the movies that you don't want to make, get the money, and then make the movies you want to make. And Francis was like, no. I don't want to be caught making the movies I don't want to make and never get around to the movies mm -hmm. I do want to make. But it's funny because he makes this, and then for money reasons, he's sort of forced to make the movies he doesn't want to make. They end up being amazing, so so whatever. But then eventually yeah. he does get back to the movies he wants to make, and a lot of them get shit on. Yeah. You you know, it's tough because, like, that's the other side of it is, like, the, the us, right? The public and the critics and this and what you know you're always trying to please us or or try to like give us what we don't know we want and things as an artist and it's difficult you know i don't i never blame anyone for just sort of putting out their work and vanishing into thin air and being a one-hit wonder or any of that because it's hard enough to make one movie you know let alone a good movie uh let alone another movie so just all the credit in the world to francis at this at this time in his career you know he pretty much like threw up his arms and said you know screw you guys like i'm gonna go show you how we should be doing it and then he never was able like at least he was able to get back there i, I wish george could get back there now today and go make like american graffiti too but you know what i mean like something small and quaint like that again but I don't I don't know. Yeah. It's just a pipe dream. Yeah, I don't know. I think he's just having fun going to Formula One races and doing his thing. So <laughs> 
But how cool if he made, what if he made a Formula One movie, like, starring Keanu or something, right? Like, uh, the, well, they both love Formula One. I mean, Keanu apparently has an F1 project. Brad Pitt has an F1 project. It's the hot thing to have a project on now, but whatever. I mean, I would, um, would I watch it? Yes, but I just think George is happy and retired and, and counting his billions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. I mean, a world without Star Wars would be, you know, I don't know. Would you take that if we if it meant, like, 50 The Rain people? No. <laughs> oh, definitely not. <laughs> I like The Rain people because it gave us Star Wars, essentially, you know? <laughs> yes. It's funny, though, because Coppola eventually cashes in and starts a vineyard and makes wine and has a good time and again when we get to zoetrope and the whole san francisco base of that is because lucas grew up near there yeah. it's not because coppola grew up near there and then mm-hmm. I, I feel like coppola gets more associated with san francisco or at least they both are he does you know, but but it's it's amazing yeah. how that happens but we'll get into that that's another episode for another time yeah yeah i know on the on my one from the heart disc set there's a huge zoetrope documentary so maybe we could watch that as a i think it's the one i have written down uh when did that dvd come out there was one in 2004 that came out and was like the history of zoetrope yeah i think that i think that's it yeah no that's very good i've seen parts of it so we'll definitely uh definitely cover that at one point but yeah i'll say it again if you are a coppola fan if you are just a fan of filmmaking Definitely watch Filmmaker. It's on YouTube. It might not be once they find out it's there. It's not on there like legally, you know, it's just, it's just there. But uh, <laughs> right. you can find it here or there. It's only 30 minutes. Check it out. We're talking about it for like an hour, but it's only 30 minutes. Uh, but it, it is really, really cool. It's an easy watch. And it just yeah. it gets you excited for more Francis stuff and Lucas stuff. But it also gets you excited just like if you love film, you know. Yeah, you know what it made me feel like? Like... It, it reminded me of like when we were shooting films in college, like we would just load up Kyle's van and shoot or something, uh, you know, and just go out there to some wherever we were going that day. But it really had that energy of that youthful spirit of, you know, let's go put on a show. And I love that it got across in this film, you know, and that that George was able to convey that vibe and that Francis was able to sort of provide this for everybody you know ups and down good and bad it seemed to be a worthwhile experience for everybody and dude i just have to say i i gotta try and find a print of that photo at the end of this where they're all standing up together and and then it pans over and then you see that george is standing on top of the truck with his camera on his hip almost like a shotgun or something like that like that is a terrific he looks like a napoleonic general he does. He does. Like or a civil they look like war a motley person, gang. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say they look like they're from the Wild oh, West. Yeah. Like they're a crew. Like a like a, like a gang about to rob a train or like, something. Like when you see yeah, those like I don't remember the names. Like you know Billy the Kid's gang or whatever. You know like yeah yeah the young guns. Yeah, it, it's really really cool. <laughs> little little personal story as we end this episode, um, and it, it's probably uh-huh. just gonna mean something to me and you, Mike, but. Um, you know, you and I really met shooting an independent film, not not as successful as this one, yeah. but, you know, uh, shooting that, something I'd written and Kyle was directing. Um, recently hung out with uh, another friend we met on there, John Harden, who was the lead in the film. Oh, cool. Someone who we're with asked us, oh, how'd you meet? And, she, and, you know, we got to talk. She's like, what was the movie about? And I was like, oh, Alex said something that was like maybe 10 seconds long. And, and she's like, oh. And then John, like, had this, like, eloquent way to describe it and she was like what wow that's really really interesting i really like that idea and we both like kind of like got the itch and looked at each other and like after she got out of the car (laughs) maybe we should revisit that right and then watching this like Mm. you know when you have that filmmaking in your blood and and you know life takes you in different directions and you get busy but you watch something like this you get that itch. You know what I mean? You get that itch. Yeah. Just, yeah. just like you said, get in Kyle's van and just shoot stuff. So, you know, <laughs> you know Brian, you know, that might've been an ambitious feature film, but I think that there's an amazing short film in there. So I think there's a super great 40 minutes or so that can contest 
on you know on the circuit so like i would revisit that with you as well you know i think that would be a lot of fun but first we must cover every francis ford coppola film cut by cut what do you mean first we could we could <laughs> do kidding. two things at once <laughs> you're like i too want to get back to making my own shit but first let's watch all of this other guy's stuff <laughs> and then zootrope could sign us <laughs> anyway mike never know hey you never know well, this was awesome. Filmmaker, what a great discovery. This is why I love podcasting, right? These these great yeah, discoveries yeah, like yeah. this. You you found this one. I thought I was the George Lucas fanboy. You found this. I have to, you know, thank you, sir, for bringing this to my attention. Well, thank George for making it. And thank the random person for putting it on YouTube. And I'm just really, really happy we got to see it. And we got to kind of just... Because it's like two directors we both love, two filmmakers we both love. It's kind of what I was saying, right? It's like that two friends doing something together and both becoming successful. And, like, who doesn't want that, right? Yeah, dude, that's the craziest thing to me now is, like, to see them where they were before their lives blew the fuck up and nothing was ever normal ever again for either of these dudes you know to see it before to see the look in their eye and the smile on their face to be like we're filmmakers look at us like you know like i'm in my 20s you're turning 30 like we got the whole world ahead of us and then 10 years later it's like oh shit like they own the cinematic world (laughs) oh my god it's insane it's insane but it's a it's a beautiful thing mike uh once again, guys, follow the show on social media. Uh, definitely subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support us any way you can. Give us free wine. Give us some free cannolis. Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to cover next for December. There's not a lot of Christmas Coppola, but but uh, we'll, we'll find we'll, hmm. we'll find something fun to, to cover uh, yeah. and, and pr- try to get two episodes in before the end of the year. Mike, I was looking it up. We've been doing this since like the spring, like April or May or whatever. It's like, it doesn't feel that long. And yeah. We got a long way to go and I'm excited. I don't think it's been that long. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is never going to end, right? Like that's part of, the- <laughs> that was part of the deal is like, we're only allowed to create new shows that have the potential to never end. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought, you know, this was finite. There's only so much Coppola material. But then, Mike, you go to the mall and find this weird, weird Coppola-related merchandise. And I'm like, this show's never going to end you right. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks so much, guys. And, Mike, why don't you uh, give us the closing line? Oh, uh, uh, leave the gun. T- take the cannoli. This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end